everybody, Jonathan Dorr with you once again. Welcome aboard to the Supply Side Podcast, Episode 2 of Season 1. We had the fantastic Nathan Lewis last week back in Episode 1, so if you haven't heard that and you want to hear from one of the people who has pioneered our understanding in recent decades of the central place of gold in economies around the world, go and check out Episode 1. But welcome to this episode because we have a fantastic guest, somebody I'm really looking forward to sharing with you. This is Mike Kendall coming to us from Dallas, Texas. It's a funny story how I first came across Mike's work. I was training for an ultra marathon and I was listening to uh, George Gilder's audiobook and he mentioned in passing Mike Kendall and his important work on the Man on the Margin blog. And I somehow held this in my mind. It was like 4.30 in the morning, freezing cold on this training run. And it stuck with me. And I looked up Mike's work, discovered his Man on the Margin blog, and have never looked back. He's writing on a whole bunch of topics related to economics, particularly gold price signals, is something you really need to discover. So please make sure after listening to this episode, you go and check out Mike's blog at manonthemargin.com. So in this conversation, we're going to cover a whole bunch of important topics. We're going to talk gold standards. We're going to talk macro. We're going to talk MMT. We're going to talk uh, crypto. A whole bunch of things, and Mike's wisdom, his depth of knowledge is just extraordinary. This is a man who has really devoted a great deal of time to truly understanding the supply side, the uh, predictive classical economic model, the work of guys like Jude Winiski. So if you want to learn from somebody who's really gone deep on these topics, then you are in for a treat in this episode. So that's it from me for now. Please make sure you've subscribed to this episode. I'll touch base with you again when we finish. But for now, sit back, relax, and enjoy this fantastic conversation with Mike Kendall coming to us from Dallas, Texas. Enjoy. Mike Kendall, welcome aboard to the Supply Side Podcast. Thank you so much for making some time to join us. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Um, thank you for connecting with me and for starting this thing. Yeah, look, it's been great. I appreciate you. And last week we spoke to Nathan Lewis and you guys are both doing this in the evening, your time. You're in Dallas, Texas. I'm here in Canberra, Australia. And I, I'm not a I'm not a night person. I've tried for decades, but by about seven seven thirty eight p.m., I wouldn't be making any sense. So I uh, appreciate you joining us in the evening. Seventeen hours difference. We got to work it some way. So <laughs> you no problem for me. I can still make it past seven. Yeah, I just wonder one day if I will, if my circadian rhythms will just make magically change. We are going to talk about a whole bunch of great stuff. We're going to talk a little bit about the work of uh, Jude Winiski. Uh, we're going to talk about supply side. We're going to talk about gold. I think you've got an incredible amount to teach us about gold, about price signals. I'm really looking forward to learning from you in that space. And we're going to talk a little bit about crypto and whether just this whole world of emerging cryptos. I'm, I had a conversation with my wife this morning. I'm just convinced that central bank digital currencies, I cannot convince myself that central banks are going to allow free play cryptocurrencies such as bitcoin to win but we'll get into that what i wanted to do was i was reading something last night and i thought of you because i'm i'm going to read you this short quote and this you could go anywhere with this 
But this comes from Ross Douthat's new book, and listeners might know Ross Douthat's uh, op-ed writer at the New York Times, and he's allegedly the only conservative left there. But in his new book, The Decadent Society, he says this on page 192. He said, The fear that we're printing and spending our way to disaster is confined to a dwindling band of deficit hawks and gold bugs and professional profits of catastrophe. So I read that last night and I was thinking, I'm not sure which one of those groups I fit into, but I want to ask you, based on that, as an opening gambit, I'm not that sophisticated in this space. I just have deep concern that MMT and the vast growth in stimulus and the other stuff we're seeing is unsustainable. Do you think that's the case of being a gold bug or a prophet of doom? Or what's your read on the waters that we're sailing into? Well, based on that quote, I think it's a, a factor of inherently understanding the world around you. Like trees don't grow to the sky and neither does debt. At some point it becomes unsustainable and you can't go on forever like this with trillion dollar deficits. And there's a cycle to history. You can go back as far as you want in the monetary world, in the economic world, and you can look at empires and you can look at their collapse and they follow a pattern. And we're repeating the pattern now, but they start out with stable money, low taxes, then they get into devaluation, then the taxes start rising, and then the collapse comes. And if you look at the Roman Empire, for example, that went on for three centuries or something, that collapse. And then you pretty much had the British Empire in with a whimper. It wasn't a catastrophe, but they went, uh, their 300-year three, gold standard almost, or 200-year. And in World War I, they abandoned it. The, their taxes raised, kept going up. They became more socialist. And, and that empire followed the same cycle. And now we're seeing it here in the U.S. We started in 1792 with our gold standard and it lasted until 1971 and we rose to the top of the economic pyramid and we became the uh, una, the sole economic power on in the global world and and now we're watching our decline in front of us so i don't think it's a matter of doom or gold bugs i think it's just understanding economic history and watching it repeat itself and you defined it very well in your previous uh, podcast with Nathan that there's a magic formula for this. And these empires begin with the magic formula and they end with the magic formula or the abandonment of the magic formula. And this cycle is just constantly repeats itself and we're watching it play out in front of us. It's not inevitable, but it's where we're going. So what is it about humans that, for an example, we have a... a a really beautiful pool here on the front of our house and I often have to go underneath the pool deck to do something with the filter system and there's these low beams and several times I've gone under there and just smashed my head into these wooden beams and eventually after doing this enough times I figured out you know what next time I'm going under there I'm just going to be real careful I want to ask you what is and I asked Nathan this what is it as, what is it about us as humans that we just, or not we, but the cabal of central bankers and their enablers globally, what is it that we don't learn this lesson of history? What, I'm interested in that dynamic. Is it based on the idea that if the most of the population just doesn't understand 
the system or the way the world works, for example? How do you explain this forgetfulness? I suppose it is uh, inherent to human behavior in the sense that we're not perfect beings. We don't always learn. We There is a, a element of society that attains power and uses it for purposes other than the benefit of everybody else. And uh, I don't know how you change that human element. We're always trying attempts to restrict that human element or behind a lot of things that happen. I, I would say that's why cryptocurrency came along. It, the advent of cryptocurrency is an attempt to create a monetary system that humans can't screw up because cryptocurrency, it's mind, it's, uh, crypt cryptography is behind it, it's a mathematical formula. It's, it, you can't touch it from a human standpoint. And so this is an evolution in economics and in, in humans too. It's a evolution that we do constantly try to get better, but we also keep making mistakes, same mistakes, but we do progress. If we didn't, we would still be where we were two centuries ago or three centuries ago. So well, you know, it's a trial and error evolutionary process. You mentioned that I was reading one of your emails today and you made that point about off the backside of these collapses, we, we do tend to progress. There's another evolution. Is there anything about this current set of circumstances, whether that means global connectedness, the, the speed of global connectedness? I understand there always would have been global connections in trade going back centuries, but the speed at which markets are connected, the, the, the sort of MMT stuff, the technologies we're using, do you think this is going to be another case of collapse and evolution, or is there something bigger about these current set of circumstances? In a sense, it's like social media. When you look at social media, there's positives to it. We can connect uh, with people we haven't seen in, in years, but there's also negatives. It can be used negatively to affect how we behave, how do we communicate, how we interact with each other. But that's true of all technology. So we have this huge leaps in technology that are occurring, and there's tremendous upside to it. But on the other side, there's tremendous downside. And it's a balance we're working our way through. We've never had social media before. We're working our way through these technological leaps and trying to figure it all out. It's really going to come down to how we deal with it. Are we going to deal with it properly? If we do, then on the other side of this, with the technology, we can have tremendous, tremendous growth come out of it on the backside. On the other hand, it can be turned into a totalitarian state quite easily. And we're seeing that. Uh, happening right now with COVID. There's the Great Reset is being uh, broadcast to us and it's coming on the back of COVID. So you have these pluses and minuses and how we deal with it is going to determine how all this comes out, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's why I have really enjoyed Duthit's book because it's a quite sc a scholarly exploration of decadence and his take on decadence isn't the way we classically understand it in terms of hedonism it's more societies running out of energy declining birth rates is part of it but it's more that the, the cultural project loses its energy and he alludes to what you've just mentioned in terms of the technology side he makes two good points one is that surprisingly our technology he his argument is it hasn't actually or it isn't actually moving that fast he said if you look back at the moves in technology around the 1940s 50s and 60s in terms of things like space travel and that sort of stuff 
He said, back then, people were convinced that we'd all be traveling to Mars on passenger ships very soon, but he, he makes the point that our technologies actually really haven't increased massively. Like, we get a new iPhone every few years, but he makes that point. But the other point he makes is, in terms of things like what you're saying, the totalitarian impulse, if you look at China's social credit system. So I'm interested in what happens when central bank digital currencies merge with a Chinese-style social credit system, when the government knows everywhere you're spending a dollar and uh, and can control access to that. So let me well, ask um, you... Yeah, can I respond to that point? On yeah. that point, I think you have to look at AI, artificial intelligence. It's expanding massively. The broadband's expanding massively, and it's enabling the artificial intelligence. And the artificial intelligence is creating all the algorithms and, and all the advances we can see from autonomous cars. They were unimaginable a year or so ago, but it's the capacity of broadband, the artificial intelligence, the algorithms that's making all that possible. So in that sense, we are seeing tremendous leaps in technology and it's occurring very fast. And the art artificial intelligence is used everywhere from, the, from a revolution, revolutionizing the medical establishment to autonomous vehicles, to a totalitarian state, if if that's where we go. So yeah. I would say, I would disagree that these leaps aren't happening fast. I would say they're happening in our current period within the last year or two very do you, fast. Do you think that the benefits of those technological improvements in things like AI, machine learning, are they concentrated in the hands of a few? And what I mean by that is, I think the point he's alluding to is that if you look at things like the steam engine, which was a truly revolutionary breakthrough. And that particular piece of technology created things like railways, which had a massive impact on commerce and living standards and, and trade and all this sort of stuff. And that filtered down to the masses. It, it really impacted in the entire society. Now, yes, AI is impacting us all, but do you think the benefits are concentrated in the hands of a few, or do you see those technologies as benefiting a large number of people? Right now, I would say they're concentrated in a few. Google has the resources and, and the money and the research to really advance the stuff. It's happening in China, too, that China is advancing in AI at, a, at a, a, as great a pace as anybody in the world. And in their sense, we're looking at a totalitarian system, as you mentioned, social credit score and negative implications for it. But we have the same tech silos in the U.S. that are consolidating this power here. So it's hard to see where it all goes, whether it will, if we break up those techs, maybe it will filter throughout the economy and more to the entity level and uh, enterprise level. Absolutely. Let me ask you now, I want to talk about Jude Winiski's work, but I wanted to ask you first, tell us a little bit about how I said this to Nathan, of all the things you could have done with your life, like you've had a, a professional career outside of what we're talking about, but of all the things you could have done with your time, what led you into this area of interest, of macro finance, of gold, of what's the background, what's the backstory that led you into the space? I listened to your same question you posed to Nathan, and, and I have almost kind of the same answer, although I'm not at the level of Nathan. I haven't, you know, done the research and written the books he has. But it was something that I started learning, and I had this uh, moment where I 
in 2013, I decided I was going to sit down and read Jude Wanensky's archives. He has Supply Side University, which you're familiar with. It's this massive educational archive that he created and built over time. And I started reading it, and the effort took me well over a year. I don't even, I can't even call if it took me two years, but I went through the entire archive in chronological order. And at some point doing that, a light bulb just came on. I started, I think I started understanding the world the way Jude understood it. And it started making sense to me. And I started achieving some clarity on how I could see economic events and what's happening in the world. And as a result of that, I started trying to write a book and didn't really get anywhere with it. And so then I, I had all these, this product for my book, and then I got a website and I start and I transitioned it to my website, which I've been doing for almost uh, four years now. Like Nathan, it's almost like this isn't really something I want. I'd much rather like you either be out on a bike or playing guitar or whatever enjoyment I have. Why am I beating my head up? beating my head around writing these pieces and putting out and getting very few views. But it's progressed. The sense that we're talking right now shows that it's making some difference somewhere. And I've gotten response. Other people have connected with me. And so it's a beneficial thing. And, and ultimately, is you look around, you see the world and you say, boy, there's a, this shouldn't be happening. There's a lot of misery in the world. And there's no per reason for it. There's no purpose. There's a simple solution to it economic wise, uh, like your, the magic formulas you talked about. There's this simple solution, but there's all this misery. And none of it is being explained by academics, by politicians, by economists. And the misery is just uh, compounding. And the point I'm trying to make is like, you see this stuff and you want to make a difference. So that's kind of how it started for me also. So just on that, having read Nathan's magic formula and talked to him last week and why does it seem that so many economists just fundamentally disinterested in the supply side nathan would say that the vast majority are just ends but it's it seems to be such a simple concept why do you think that the academy is not talking about it or how do you explain that I think there's various reasons, but I think if you want to get to the origination, you go back to the late 1800s when the economist profession started coming into being. We didn't really have economists going back to the classical period who wrote all the great books on economics. They were all citizen economists. But as a profession, it began in the late 1800s and has increased exponentially since then. But the idea was that the economics profession wanted a hard science, the same as mathematics or physics or anything else. And to get a hard science, you needed mathematical equations. And it went from, economics is a behavioral science. It's in incentives. It's how we respond to incentives. It's human behavior. It's how we react. But the economists wanted a hard science and a formula, mathematical formulas, and it's evolved over the years. And to a certain extent, they're just mouthpieces for politicians. They justify what politicians want to do anyway. So the economics profession acts in the interest, not of the masses of people who want a better life, in my opinion. And, and I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm just saying this is the way that 
the profession has evolved. They act more in the interest of uh, as political opportunists that they get their grants, they get their money. So it's the whole economics profession, in my view, is a regression. We can look at the world around us. Everything is progressing, but economics is regressing. Mm. They figured it out back in the 1700s. And we, we're going backwards. It's this cycle I'm talking about. It, we're regressing. As the whole world advances, economics is going backwards. So, so it, it is a, a weird concept to try to figure out. So at the root of it all must be some kind of expediency. Nathan and I met, talked about this. So most of our politicians will have one to two terms, depending on which country you're in, somewhere between six to eight years. And Peter Schiff used to say that you don't go into politics to make money, you go into politics to make money after politics. So, and I don't want to be overly cynical, but you you don't want to be the politician that introduces austerity, right? Because it seems that these decisions, the hard decisions about deficits, about spending, about programs, are not taken because in a term or two you're going to be out of there anyway and what does that mean for our wider political economy for our culture in general when that sort of expediency means no one's going to make those hard decisions i, th I think that builds on the cycle you were we were talking about earlier is that's a point that why that cycle progresses and then uh, things start collapsing is because people aren't willing to make the hard decisions and they build on themselves but you know, what you learn from the magic formula, uh, once you start in understanding how stable money works, how low taxes work, is that they can, if they're adhered to, uh, they can prevent this type of thing. Because you, you can't have the monetary creation on a gold standing. See, the gold standing is democratic because gold is meted out by earth. It's preciousness. You can't say... I want production of gold to go up to 20%. It's annually, it's 2%, and it's been that way for centuries, and that's what defines its value, the fact that its production remains stable relative to its total stock, which is 200,000 tons now, and it's not consumed. So all the gold ever created is still there, and it has this minimal stock flow every year that's consistent. So you, you can't mess with it. You can't, even the capital component, it doesn't have one, so it negates that. So technology... Advances in technology population don't increase gold production. It remains stable relative to the stock as it has for centuries, and that defines its value. So it's democratic. You can't mess with it, okay? But if you take our fiat system, which Jim Grant calls a PhD standard, because it's, what, seven or 12 guys at the Federal Reserve or women, men and women, get together and decide basically by whim on the economic theory de jure, whether they're gonna create dollars or how much or what's gonna happen. And that's elitist. It's a, a bunch of elite guys who work for somebody. The Federal Reserve is a private institution. It's mm. privately owned. Whose interests are they representing? And so with the gold, you have a democratic system and it prevents a lot of these issues that you're talking about dealing with because it's a, a system that you can't mess with. And is it true that governments don't like gold because they can't print it? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but it's a question of 
again, of whose interests they're representing. And as power evolves to the top, and what we're seeing in the U.S. now is more crony capitalism versus real capitalism. And people don't distinguish it. There's a big push towards socialism in the U.S. right now. We don't really have capitalism. We have crony capitalism that just benefits the few and the wealthy. And Jude Wininski, he had a great statement. He said, a good socialism is better than bad capitalism. And so people, if you're getting screwed by capitalism, you at least get something from socialism. So that's the movement we're seeing. And you have to distinguish what's happening with capitalism and why it's happening to understand these other moves like towards socialism on a, in the U.S. and probably on a global scale, too. Yeah, I feel lately it's, I feel a little bit the way you might feel if you found out you were adopted. I was like, in the last sort of 12 months of starting to study this space, I think my whole life had always been like, what is it, Churchill said that capitalism is the worst system ever invented except for every other one that's ever been tried. I always thought that it was just the ordained system of quasi-perfection, but you start to dig deeper, as you're saying, with the crony capitalism, the evisceration of the middle class, you start to go, wow, it's it's like finding out you're adopted. They're what you, a lot of the beliefs that you held about how the system operates, you start to see are built on a pretty flimsy basis of evidence. And as you were but talking, see, yeah, go. To understand that, you really need to have a model, and this is what I call the Wininskian model that I learned from him, that's a foundation. There's an economic foundation. When you have stable money defined by gold, and that's a big discussion, why does gold work? But but let's just assume, we'll accept that in history, we've had gold standards and they worked, okay? We'll just make the assumption that gold is stable in value and they work, okay? So you have a monetary foundation that is stable in value and it prevents all these other problems that lead to the crony capitalism that we're experiencing because you can't devalue the currency. Prior to 1971, you didn't have derivatives, you didn't have interest rate derivatives. That all came into being to manage this system, the fiat system, because interest rates were going all over the place and you had to put risk premium into contracts and derivatives came and they've expanded and expanded And Gilder calls it the hypertrophy of finance. It's basically our entire uh, system is based on churning currency rates and stuff to keep some uh, semblance of stability to our system. And the top people profit off of this. And meanwhile, the bottom people that are trying to produce stuff, they're completely messed up by it. They can't get a footing because there's no foundation for them of stability upon which to start their production and everything yeah this is what i understood as the as the cantillon effect which is that when money is when currency is created and dumped into the economy it's the people closest to that money tap that benefit first so it's big corporations it's but by the time it actually reaches the pockets of the poorest in society inflation's usually kicked in so Whatever benefits there were to currency printing are usually they usually accrue to those mostly connected to those printing the money in the first place. So I wanted to ask you, can you take us into the Wininsky model? So for those who aren't familiar, Jude Wininsky wrote the book The Way the World Works, which is so hard to get. I, on Amazon yesterday, there's a hardback copy available for six hundred dollars. 
I think it'd be great really? to see. Yeah, I think it'd be great to see someone buy the rights, reprint it, and get it out there because you can't get it on Kindle. And the copy that I managed to get, it arrived in an original format and then just fell apart. So I'm sitting there at my son's cricket game and it's windy and I'm trying to read this, read Jude's book and pages are flying everywhere. So Mike, tell us about Jude. Tell us about his model of the way the world works. Help us understand who he was and what he was trying to communicate. What Jude did is, first of all, the guy was quite brilliant extremely brilliant. He was a political science major, became a reporter, ended up at the Wall Street Journal in the early 70s with no background in economics. And that's when the great inflation started. And as an economic writer for the editorial page of the Wall Street Journal, he started trying to figure this out. And he hooked up with Robert Mundell, Arthur Laffer, Robert Bartley, and other people. And by 1978, he had written his book, which is National Review's 100 Best Books of All Time. Interestingly, he, he was writing his book under Irving Kristol's uh, foundation. At the same time, George Gilder was writing Wealth and Poverty, which also became a uh, bestseller at the time. They were actually in the same foundation, writing their books at the same time. So his book came out in 1978. He quit the Wall Street Journal, and he started an economic institutional client consulting firm called Polyconomics. And it grew from there. But he is a pro prolific writer just a tr tremendous amount of output and it, his his wife patricia has made it available for everyone under polyconomics.com the entire archive everything i used to pay to get it's all there right now mm. and so i like i said i went through i read it and and i started getting what he's talking about because what he did he, he you know he he wasn't locked into classical economics he read karl marx he he adapted the good the things that Marx got, he adapted the things that Adam Smith got, that Keynes got, all the economists, going back to the classical economists, even back to Middle Eastern economists, I probably can't pronounce his, his name properly, but Ibn Khaldun, mm. a Muslim person who was writing back in the 1500s or something. So he, synth he distilled all this, he synthesized it into a model. He basically got everything that works properly from all these different people in synthesized it into his own model and and it's basically at, at its simplest it's what Nathan Lewis has written it's the magic formula stable money and low taxes okay but it's extremely complex in the sense that what affects stable money why does it work what affects taxes and the only closed economy is a world economy so you, you can't just look at what the feds do and you can't just look at tax policy in the u.s you gotta look all around the world you gotta look at what china's doing you gotta look at what russia what europe japan so all this synthesized into this foundational model which is able to look at all these different things and understand what's happening and the reason the, the primary reason why this works on the monetary side is because gold is a foundational monetary uh, unit of his model. And so gold, if, if you accept that gold is stable in value, that its value doesn't change, okay? When we look at post-1971, people look at the price of gold's gone up, gone down, whatever. It's not the, when you look at his model, Gold is stable. It hasn't changed. It's the dollar that goes up, that goes down. So gold signals all these errors that the Fed is making. And if you understand this model 
and you understand the gold signal, you can start seeing what's happening in the world. And then as your analysis progresses, as you get better at it, you can start distilling all this stuff that's happening into your model and understand why it's happening. And then on the flip side of that, you have fiscal policy, taxes and, and everything else. So it's the same. So let me give you an example. In the 70s, we had the high inflation, right? We had chaos all over the world. Every standards of livings were collapsing, the price of oil, everything. All right. So Greenspan came along in the 80s and started, sta he, he restabilized the price of gold at basically $350 an ounce. It previously had been $35 an ounce on Bretton Woods. And, Brit and Greenspan kept it stable from about 83 to 2006 when Bernanke took over. So we had the foundational semi, mostly stable monetary platform under those years. And, and for example, in Jude's model, you would recognize this. Okay, so the way to look at the model is you have stable money and taxes. If the mon if on the monetary side, if it's stable, if monetary policy is going away from that stable, if it's becoming unstable, then things are going to get worse. If monetary policy is moving back towards stable money, economic things are going to get better. The same with taxes. If they're going towards higher taxes, it's going to get worse. If they're going towards lower taxes, it's going to get better. So in, in, in the 80s under Greenspan, we had relatively stable money. So that was the beginning. We could start saying, hey, things are going to get, we're getting stable money here. We have the we have what in place to have high economic growth. The next thing, Reagan cuts taxes. The brackets came down from seventy percent to twenty eight percent, a huge fiscal incentive for production. And so you take those two elements. You had stable money, the money was moving towards stability, you had lower taxes, it was moving towards fiscal growth, and we had the subsequent explosion. And anybody who understood those principles back those in those days. And Jude, he, he bought a house when interest rates were at their peak because he saw that stable money, those rates were going to come down. And it's a foundation for understanding the economic world. And it's very basic in its simplicity, but it's very complex in its nuances and trying to put everything together. Yeah. Yeah, Does I that felt, make sense? I felt that trying to read it. I was sort of, uh, I was reading it and just having to really concentrate and you need to do that when you're reading something important. So the area that you've got a real expertise in is this concept of the gold price signal. Can you help us understand that better? Because I, I think you're right and I'd like to understand it better. I know people listening would. Can you give us some insight into how you understand the signaling price of gold? Yeah, my view is that the problems in the world today, the, the, Fiscal policy is not that bad. Ever since Reagan brought down taxes, the world realized that low taxes uh, are better than high taxes. They haven't gone back up to confiscatory rates uh, around the world. And so I concentrate more on the monetary side because I don't think we can get where we need to be until we return to stable money. And, and so the gold signal, like I said, it's, a, it's the idea that gold is stable in value. Now, for me, it's not an idea. I've looked into it. I understand why it's stable in value for the reasons I stated before, that it negates a technological advances, population advances in its, its stock to flow and, and the negation of capital component. In other words, to make this clear, like in the old days, place or gold, you'd go to a stream with a pan, you'd find gold right in the stream. 
okay it was that available as time goes by as population increase that gold disappears and then you have to start digging then you have to have mines now we have tunnel bores that go deep into the earth we have satellite imagery we have all kinds of geographical systems that can look into the ground and find expedite the finding of gold and drilling so all these advances have not increased gold production at all okay that is how gold negates a capital component you could throw money at all this technology but it doesn't change the production of gold and that's why it remains stable in value and that's a unique concept i came across uh, really digging into the weeds on all this that so how do you explain I that say i mean that's that's most people don't grasp that's truly fascinating as i listen to you i haven't heard it explained like that so to summarize you're, you, you talk about gold negating population growth and technological advancements. Your thesis is surely if we were able to throw exponential new amounts of technology and capital at gold exploration, we would see a corresponding rise in gold flow. But you're saying there's something truly unique about gold that no matter how much we throw at it, it still seems to yield pretty much the same stock flow. Yeah, not only that, but the way the gold mining works. When the price of gold, there's a cutoff in gold mining uh, grade that's profitable or unprofitable. A grade is how many grams of gold per ton of ore that they can extract from the earth. So there's a cutoff grade. So what happens when the price of gold goes up, they go to the lower grades because they then become profitable. At a lower price, those grades aren't profitable and they have to go to the higher grades for profitability. So this all works in the same favor of negating a capital component like I was talking about before. The way the mining industry is very unique in the sense that the price of gold determines the grade and how much gold gets mined and where it gets mined and how gold miners approach their mining. So grades of gold that may not have been mined in 2015 when the price of gold fell down to 11, 1050 an ounce now become very profitable at 1800 mm. an ounce so they shift the mining into these mines and they don't mine the, the higher grades and that also regulates the production in the same way and so when you combine this with all of gold's properties gold's natural properties are all monetary everything about gold it's limited industrial use its preciousness it doesn't corrode it's malleable it's there's not much industrial use for it and it's not consumed. It's the only commodity that's not consumed. That's why all the gold that's ever existed is still there. So all these properties lend to its monetary properties. But what I was talking about previously is what defines its value. And people cannot comprehend why gold has value. That's always a big question. Whenever you talk to anyone about gold, is it based on trust? It's just a shiny rock. It has no value whatsoever. But I, I submit from the discussion we just had, there absolutely are reasons why gold has value and they're almost providential why is it that gold is found on every continent that its supply is very limited and that it negates capital components and technological improvement it's almost divine inspiration i, I would say if you wanted to go that direction yeah i remember recently hearing Warren Buffett likes to call it a pet rock, but then he just bought a massive stake in Barrick Gold. But I'm pretty sure he sold that off. I, I remember tracking something recently where 
they were trying to figure out what his move was because he bought a big stake, but then I think he's actually a lot of it's a lot of it's been the interesting thing about Warren Buffett was his father was a huge gold proponent. And Warren, my belief is Warren understands gold, but it's like an act for him. Okay. <laughs> for whatever reasons. But the guy's no dummy. And the things I just talked about, you can't ignore gold's history. In my view, it's just an act on his part. So to jump ahead a little bit, you take us to your thoughts on the crypto gold sort of relationship, because did I read you right recently when you were saying that cryptos are going to work, they just haven't figured it out yet? Or do you think that ultimately we will see gold return to its cultural dominance? When you look at the genesis of cryptocurrency, it's always related to gold. Yeah. Anytime crypto people are talking about cryptocurrency, they're, they relate it or talk about in terms of gold. And, and really, if you want to look at how this came about, you can go back to Austrian economics. And Murray Rothbard, you said you were reading a book yeah. of his. And the idea, Murray Rothbard had the idea that he wanted a gold standard free from human interference. Basically, a gold standard that would run on autopilot, that humans couldn't mess up because he looked around the world and saw that we had gold standards and eventually they fall apart. And the reason they fall about is because they have to be managed by humans. And his idea was 100% reserves. All money has to be backed by gold but that that's ridiculous there's not an there's not enough gold to act as a currency and you can't expand it to meet economic needs but cryptocurrency evolved from this same idea cryptocurrency is an idea that a new monetary system that politicians economists nobody can mess with because it works on the same automatic system and so there's this huge correlation with the evolution of cryptocurrency as it relates to gold and the idea that we want to create a system that is free from human interference and that will work on its own and cryptocurrency does but if gold if you have a 2.5 percent increase in production every year cryptocurrency is basically it's fixed bitcoin has its 21 million units and they're, I don't know what percent, over 80% there yeah. right now. And yeah. 120 years for the next 15% or whatever. So it's basically fixed in value. And I have this little quip I came up with. You can put crypto in front of currency, but it doesn't change the history of money. Just because you add crypto to currency, you don't suddenly get a new monetary system. Money works the way it's always worked. And there has never been a fixed supply of money anywhere in the world in history of economics or any country it, it's it makes no sense you simply can't have a fixed supply of currency that can't meet the expansion of of economic growth so i was hearing this week that there's nothing to stop the inner sanctum of the blockchain guys just rewriting the code for bitcoin and saying, hey, we were just joking about the 21 million thing. <laughs> Guess what? And keep going. Would that change much if they developed a model for increasing supply? Yeah, absolutely. The thing with uh, cryptocurrency is there's 
two elements to it. One is a blockchain, the other is a currency, and, and they both have to work for the other to work. In other words, the blockchain is there as a ledger for economic transactions that's cemented into perpetuity once they're on the blockchain. But nobody's using cryptocurrency for anything other than speculation, really, or maybe some money transfer. So there's this disconnect between the promise of cryptocurrency and the blockchain and what's actually happening. And the reason is because of this flaw, this fixed supply flaw. So, yeah, absolutely. Take Craig. In my view, he's Satoshi. He came up, he created uh, Bitcoin and then moved on to his Bitcoin Satoshi vision. Mm. He's got scalability, unlimited block sizes, all the things to make this happen, except people need to use it for the transaction of goods and services. Who's going to go out and buy a Starbucks with their Bitcoin when it just went from, in the course of six months, from $6,000 to $18,000? That's ridiculous. And now they're they're saying it's going to go to 50, 100,000, whatever. So nobody's ever going to use it for anything. So it's never going to achieve its purpose. The blockchain is never going to take off as a decentralized ledger that the promise of uh, Bitcoin created when it started with this. And that's not going to happen until at some point, either the thing collapses or somebody comes along and says, hey, this isn't working. How do we fix it? And honestly, I think I know how it could be fixed. So Peter Schiff sees Bitcoin as a massive Ponzi scheme, tulip speculation bubble disaster. Uh, He's got a video on YouTube, which is quite funny. It's an old Sesame Street scene where Lefty, the, the kind of sneaky criminal character in Sesame Street, is trying to put one over on, on Ernie. And he's, got, he's trying to sell him a box of air. But every time he goes, I'm going to sell you this, they, they do an overdub of the voice and it changes it to Bitcoin. So he's trying to sell him Bitcoin as this box of air. I can't see how it's a store of value. And as a payment rail, it's a disaster. The new, the, all the altcoins are much faster payment rails, and I'm pretty sure the Swift network had a massive upgrade in the last year or two, and it's just much faster. So I don't see how it's a store of value. I don't see how it's an effective payment rail. And the question I really wanted to ask you is I cannot see how central banks and the BIS and all these guys are going to allow a private competitor to to basically cut their lunch they're surely going to just take the crypto space themselves yeah i think what's happening right now as far as governments are concerned is that first of all cryptocurrency when i as a proxy or as a proxy for all cryptocurrencies let's just say bitcoin because there's actually thousands of these cryptocurrencies but uh bitcoin is not a threat to any national currency because nobody uses it for anything so it's not threatening the government they have no problem with it really the second thing is that if governments want to go to digital cashless societies based on a national uh, central bank cryptocurrency or whatever they come up with the crypto space now is providing the technology it's advancing it all the progress in technology is coming through the private space and that they'll just adopt that technology for their own use and third of all it's uh it's a tax revenue gainer for countries so as long as it's a speculative asset 
that they can find in tax, then they got the benefits. So basically, cryptocurrency as it exists now is just not a threat. It's really a benefit to government. So they have, I don't think they, A, they probably don't understand it that well, or they're just beginning to, and B, it's not uh, threatening them. So I think they're satisfied to leave it alone for right now. Yeah. Yeah. I heard some stuff during the week that they're okay, like you say, to leave it alone as long as they can get their cut on the on-ramps and off-ramps, right? As long as they can can take it, some kind of tax cut when people are onboarding or offboarding that to their crypto. There's one other aspect to it is that, like Bitcoin, really to shut it down, you can hurt it, you could tax it, but it's it's a, you'd have to shut down the internet to get rid of it. If you shut it down and the US, it can go to China or it can go to Russia. Or I don't see the whole world shutting it down. So there's limits to what government can do to it. Yeah, I liked, I liked originally its original promise of anonymity because I, I did the Oxford Business School crypto economics program. and But the as I went further down there, I, I just realized that the anonymity stuff's really not there. Like when I bought some Bitcoin, which I, I've sold that position, but... I was stunned, like to the, the amount of KYC stuff that I had to do. You actually have to stand there with your phone and your driver's license or your passport and photograph yourself and then upload that. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but I was this idea that you had these anonymous addresses and that you had some freedom from government. I, I don't think that's being borne out from what I've seen. So. No, it's always been pseudonymous and people didn't understand that in the beginning. And that's what happened with Silk Road is that yeah. it became a marketplace for illegal goods and drugs. And But everybody who made a transaction on Bitcoin, it's linked to an IP address. Yeah. You have a, a cryptographic a public key that identifies you, but it's linked to your IP address. So anytime that Bitcoin moves, you can trace it from one IP address to another. Yeah. And it's and plus it, it's in the blockchain forever. I wanted to so, ask you yeah. something you said at the start, which resonated with me. You talked about fact that the fact that trees don't grow to the sky. There seems to be these embedded laws in the cosmological order, the structure of reality. I want to talk with you a little bit on about MMT, I like to think that if a 10-year-old sees some logical flaws with a position, it probably has some logical flaws because my kids and I have been watching Mike Maloney's original series, uh, Hidden Secrets of Money, which is I really enjoyed watching with them. And they get this idea that you can't magically create money out of nowhere. They're, my kids are like, but we can't do that. One of my daughters actually said that to me during the week. She goes, but but we just can't print money. I said, no, we can't. So if a tree can't grow to the sky, if there's certain laws to the structure of reality, what is happening with this MMT? What takes us to what you think is going to happen if you just magically keep increasing the currency supply? In this Wininskian model I talked about, you can explain it, and but you have to understand... And the gold signal, you have to understand how the Fed works. And there's sort of uh, two demarcation lines, I would say, with their economic in the recent past. The first one goes back to 1971 with the closure of Bretton Woods, the ending of the gold standard, the introduction of a global fiat system. And the second demarcation line is 2008, the great financial crisis. Because what happened after that is the Fed completely changed how they've been operating from their inception in 1913 up to 2008. 
all of a sudden quantitative easing came into being. Interest on ex interest on reserves was passed by a law of Congress, an act of Congress that allowed Fed to pay interest on reserves. And that changed the entire function of how the Fed previously worked. And most people missed that demarcation line or that change. They didn't understand it. All they saw was the Fed increasing its uh, balance sheet from eight, $800 billion at 2008 to $4.7 billion up until about two, 2019. And then they started normalizing, reducing it a little bit. But So they saw this tremendous increase in the Fed's balance sheet, and they didn't see the inflation coming. Hey, w well, wait a minute. The Fed can almost increase its balance sheet unlimited, create unlimited dollars, and we're not seeing the inflation. So that basically justified an idea of MMT, and, and it took off from there. MMT didn't really exist uh, prior to 2008. It's, it may have existed in certain theoretical circles of monetary discussion, but it didn't exist as a practical application that it's coming into now. And the reason it's coming into is because of this idea that seems to be borne out in front of us day by day. The Fed's balance sheet is over $7 trillion right now. Since COVID, it's increased almost $2 trillion in a year. And there seems to be no repercussion for it on the economic front as far as inflation and everything else. So in my view, that's the idea where this came from. If we were on a, a gold standard, nobody would think about MMT. It would have it would have no purpose. It, it would just be a crazy, ridiculous idea. There'd be no point to it. MMT is another function of understanding the monetary world and what's happening. And again, I would attribute that to this base model that I, I learned and talked about. I liked when you talked about the Fed changing its modus operandi so dramatically in 2008. And I was riding this morning, I was on the bike listening to a long interview and Somebody quoted Milton Friedman, who famously said, there's nothing more permanent than a temporary government program. <laughs> I like that quote. No, it's quite good. That uh, Exactly. 2008, as soon as they started quantitative easing, they immediately get, began to talk about normalization, meaning bring, get rid of the excess reserves. 2.7 trillion later, they finally started normalizing. But now we're up to over 3 trillion. So you're right. Once you start something, it spirals on itself. They tried normalization and things started collapsing in 2018 because the system is now based on this creation of more and more dollars to keep everything going. And where, like you say... Where does it go? Like, it, this is what I'm getting back with your tree analogy. Like, How do you magically create something at a keystroke that has such power and influence in a society? And it not eventually, it just seems to be subverting, and Nathan said this, the kind of the quantum order of reality, like you just can't, only God seems to have got the one option of creation from nothing, right? Like, where does it, where are we going? I think it's just like people inherently understand the value of gold in, ter in times of uh, turmoil and chaos, they want to hold gold. People inherently understand also that this economic fiat economic system that is increasing debt to unsustainable level can't go on forever. In the meantime, you don't want to miss a party. So it goes on. But think about the Soviet Union. It was a command economy, uh, millions of people in prison, but that lasted 70 years uh, before it finally collapsed. So these things can go on for economic distortion, capital misallocation. It can go on for a very long time. 
Yeah, this was, uh, again, going back to Duthit's book, The Decadent Society, was interesting because in the closing chapters, intuitively we think it leads to a an ancient Roman cultural collapse, but he was making the point that actually decadent cultures can limp on for a pretty long period of time. There, there's an interesting aspect that there's a social component to monetary turmoil in there's a book, Adam Ferguson, When Money Dies, about Weimar Germany, the hyperinflation. And it talked about Versailles and all the things that led to the hyperinflation and, and what went on. But the interesting part was the social ramifications of that. Because, see, there's a bond of trust the, between the citizens of government, mm-hmm. which is stable money. Meaning, if I go out and earn work for a dollar's worth of wages, that dollar should be worth a dollar. If the government comes along and devalues it and it's only worth 50 cents, then the government is breaking that bond. And then the reciprocation by people is that, oh, wait a minute, if you're cheating me, what do I owe you, the government? So there's a social unraveling that starts occurring through these devaluations. And, and we're seeing that happening parallel to all the economic issues that are going on. We're having, there's a social unraveling in America, and it's going to get worse as this continues to get worse because when people lose trust in the government, now we have election fraud. If, if this doesn't get sorted out, what's the point of even voting if we, if we can't believe that the election system works honestly? So all these things are compounding on each other, the social fabric, the economic disintegration. And the crony capitalism, the rich getting richer, the the bridge between the rich and poor. And if you look at deep into the Great Reset, this is the foundation for what they want. This is, you could say, this is a plan. That's what the reset is. We're going to blow this thing up and reset it. There's a lot of things uh, going on uh, that right now that are interesting. They're not pleasant, but they're interesting to look at it as you, somebody who studies history and economics there seems to be a cadence to it at the moment a pace at which things are moving my wife karen and i talk about that a lot there just seems to be a cadence to it like the i said to her yesterday that there's a pretty good chance that cash could disappear really quickly here in australia like just you're seeing less and less of it and as soon as COVID happened there were signs everywhere saying we prefer not to handle cash we don't want cash because of COVID but there just seems to be a cadence to the speed at which things are moving that can you, is you is, well, they seem to keep it controlled in the sense that it's not spiraling out of control it's a steady degradation and it happens over time and over a decade you don't notice it much as much but there will come a point where it will spiral out of control and then everything will fall apart. But as long as they keep it controlled, they can keep this going. As long as the idea that this is losing control, would one of the primary signals would be the gold signal. The price of gold started going up to $3,000, $4,000, $5,000. Mm. Every advance in the price of gold is an indication that the Fed is devaluing the dollar and things. And the monetary chaos is getting worse. Well, poke some holes in this strategy, because I talked about this last week. Like, I've gone hard on physical gold and silver, and some gold ETFs. I, I started selling equity positions I got the l- last, well, last few weeks and got it. Didn't time it perfectly, for sure. I still check the numbers each day and have a small urge to cry as I keep seeing the equity bubbles expand. But... 
can you, my strategy at the moment is hard on precious metals and a cash position should there be a solid correction can you poke holes in that what would you be saying to people at the moment would you be making a case for owning physical precious metals yeah absolutely i understand gold and that's what i've been investing in mainly but there's an odd dichotomy to this model i've been talking about in the sense that if you can th see things clearly like you can see well wait a minute this isn't going to be sustainable on the investment side in my case i invest in gold but i, I used to be on the technology side but i pulled out of it so i don't think there's a correlation and i sent you an email on this yeah. a correlation between understanding an economic model and investing that's a completely different animal you can have no understanding of the macro world but you can have very good street smart inst investment instincts you have the cold blood to know when to pull the trigger when to get out when to get in and it's instinctual and and those people uh, can do very well without any knowledge base whatsoever of what's happening in the world or why. So it's hard to give investment advice when you can say, yeah, this thing's not going to last, but how long before it doesn't last? What am I going to miss out in the interim? And my view since 2015, when I figured out what was happening, gold was to pretty much stick with gold in, in the long run. It's going to go up. There's going to be, as there are always, ups and downs, but they're not going to be able to correct this system. The interesting point is what's going to be happening if they do go to this digital cashless society. I would have to read how they intend to do that, but that's a tremendous upheaval in the global monetary system to get rid of cash because there's like, a, I don't know, 1.8 trillion of US dollars in circulation around the world. Mm. What happens to that? How does it just disappear? How do they uh, get control of that? But I think that's still pretty far in the future, in my opinion. Yeah, I was, I'm trying to get my head around what happens if we get CBDCs to the banking sector. If the Fed can just go around the banking system and give money to people directly, then what's the impact of that for the banking system? And that got me thinking. That's part of uh, the Great Reset, a universal basic income, that in return for getting you universal basic income, you'll give up your property or your private ownership of property or whatever. Whether those things will ever come to pass, I'm very doubtful because I think people will stand up and say, no, we're not going there. But that's what they're talking about, and that's where things are headed right now. What's your gut feeling, Mike? Do you see us at some point in this historical moment so this this epoch of whatever time frame over the next decades do you see us back on a gold standard at some point yeah i think i think so i think a template for it is weimar germany there i i forget his name i can't say it off the top of my head but the guy in charge of their money after the weimar collapse worked from like a janitor's closet with a telephone by himself and reestablish a gold standard overnight, basically. Mm. And all the production that had gone into uh, hiding because nobody would bring their produce or commodities to market when the money was worthless, right. all, all of a sudden started reappearing. They went from desperation, complete collapse desperation overnight to return to economic growth and basic uh, necessities. Do we have to go through the same crisis here? I don't think so. One of the interesting things right now is Judy Shelton is 
nominated for a Fed position. Now, she's a big gold proponent. She understands it completely. She's written books on it. And maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe, I don't know whether she'll get confirmed or not, but maybe there's a reason she's being put up for that. And hopefully she'll be confirmed. And that'll add a institutional knowledge base to our Federal Reserve. And who knows where it might go from there. Don't you think that the when you look at the power of the Davos set, the BIS, World Bank, all of the, the significant players, and you wrote about this really well on your blog, which we're going to link to, but I, I struggle to see how they let this correct. This is the nature of the Great Reset, right? That They're hoping to rebuild it in their own image, but they seem so entrenched and so powerful. I don't see what forces are really arrayed against them other than civilizational unrest at some point that's it the populace at some point is going to have to figure it out and truthfully i didn't look into this until covid came along yeah. I, for me covid didn't make any sense how the heck is this happening all over the world nothing makes sense there's zero things that make sense but yet it's happening all over the entire world and that was a wake-up call for me i'm writing about it other people are writing about it other people are figuring it out and the populace is going to have to stand up to stop this. The only stop this. this is the only way it's going to happen. And can I, yeah, revolutions happen. Things change. It only takes one person with an idea that other people graph on to change the world. For example, you're, my website is Man on the Margin, but you're the man on the margin. You're starting this supply side podcast. Nobody's ever done it before. You're going to add greatly to the library. You could change the world just through this podcast. It could get picked up by somebody influential. It could affect a politician. And books. That's the way things happen. Yeah, I keep thinking to myself, I keep asking myself this one question. I'm like, how did I get here? I'm like, I'm talking to Mike today and I'm like talking to you. And I'm like, how did this happen? It's interesting, the connections and this because COVID affected my ability to travel and all that stuff and I just started reading and I'm like you don't want to turn into that road to Damascus living in your basement convert that's seeing the great reset in every corner of reality but yeah I think there's a strong sense for me of this system is very skewed to privileging a very small number of people and when I read Nathan's The Magic Formula in those early chapters, he's making a strong link between the magic formula and the moral nature of a culture. So if, if you have low taxes and stable money, you tend to get much better social cohesion, less poverty, less social dysfunction and violence. And for the first time, I thought I really saw the link between economics, political economy and human flourishing. So I'm hoping we can get back there without too much civilizational suffering yeah like I, I mentioned before the the greatest bond between government system uh, government and its people is stable money and once you break that bond society phrase and you're right you're absolutely right we're seeing all that happen and it's distressing and it's hard to be optimistic about the future because this has gone quite far right now the fed with the seven trillion dollar balance sheet in the space of one decade, which is a seven times increase in growing. Next year, I, I assume they're going to monetize the entire debt issuance at $3.5 So it's only going to get worse. So the further it gets out there, the harder it, be, it is to correct without disaster happening. But I think there are solutions. I think there are people that 
understand the solutions. And Reagan came along when people had just about given up on the world. Inflation, chaos everywhere, standards of living collapsing. And he turned it, it turned around almost overnight as soon as he got the tax cuts and the Greenspan stable money. That potential is still there and it can happen. What stops the Fed just writing it off their balance sheet? Like they're monetizing the debt, but what stops them from just... I mean, that eventually that's the Weimar solution. It, it just collapses and there's no value to it and everybody's wiped out. But what stops them from doing it is they can't do it unless somebody's wiped out. And if they wipe them out and make them whole, they're just going to increase, they're going to monetize everything they just wiped out. So there's no, so you can't wipe somebody out in, the, in our non-austerity uh, world without, without funding them to keep them going. And that's what happened in 2008. The banks all collapsed, basically, and the Fed came along and just pumped in the money and got them going again instead of letting things fail. And... And so we're at that point now where they it starts building on itself. You just have to keep it going because there's no other there's no other solution other than to keep it going. Let me ask you something just on that related back to that sort of naturalist analogy we've been discussing about a tree not growing to the sky. Back in 2008 when the banks were too big to fail. Like the naturalist argument for me was often like a, a storm going through a forest, like when a big storm goes through a forest it takes out all the dead wood it it anything that isn't strong and grounded is exposed and destroyed or damaged so do you think back in 2008 the forces just should have been allowed to do what they would have naturally done or do you think it was necessary to prop those banks up to to stop more suffering for more people i think eventually a lot of the banks should have been allowed to fail, not to the point it, it caused a syst systemic collapse of the entire global economy. But it's, why did all this happen? In the Clinton years, they got rid of Glass-Steagall, which put a separated commercial banking and investment banking. And so there's a lot of things that led all to this, and it was the absence of stable money, interest rates increasing, and people... Uh, buying their homes and all this stuff that led to it. So when you when you look at a solution, you can't just say, oh, we can't let them fail or we can't let them fail. You have to understand what caused it. And then if you're going to let somebody fail, you have to come in and repair what's causing the damage, the economic damage. And this never gets looked into because we're on this fiat system and nobody understands or believes in stable money, really, based on gold, or few do. And so, to, so you can't have, you can't create the necessary repair unless you understand the system that can repair it. So just to let it fail, have all these people hurt, and then go on with the same system doesn't make any sense. But to keep the system going as it is for another decade like we're at now, it makes it worse too. So we're just delaying the pain? Yeah, we're kicking the can. <laughs> Of kicking the can down the road every day. This politician and that politician, the next politician, this president, they're all kicking the can. Because I don't want to have an overly cynical view of our politicians because I know there's many good men and women who, who do enter public life hoping to be agents for positive influence. But it just seems that the structure now, like I said before, is that you don't want to be the person who breaks the bad news you don't want to be that politician going 
I was thinking today after writing that the social programs set up in the US in the 20th century. I remember reading in Nathan's book that in, I think it was 1944, 1943, there was 44 US workers for every retiree. Now you can build a pension system on those kind of numbers, right? But today it's, I think it's either three or two US workers to every retiree. You can't fund it. It's it's almost as if the political promises we made 50 to you know 70 years ago just can't be sustained by a current economic reality. Yeah, when you when you look at that, whether it's wage growth or supporting social security or whatever, there, there's an interesting thing you can look at. You can look at a graph of any major economic event and go to 1971, and that's when things start going haywire. Yeah. That's when the wage growth started declining that's when standards delivered that's when the price of oil shot up pretty much every economic indicator that means anything started going haywire in 1971 and but nobody or politicians economists they can't make the connection they can't make the connection with stable a lot of people can but our economic profession can't they can't make that connection with stable money so when we talk about 44 people there's a natural evolution 44 people supporting each uh, retiree there's a natural ev evolution with technological pro progress that it takes less and less people to support one because we become more productive technologically so that's not that big a worry when you have a stable economic foundation to build all all that on but when things go haywire like of 1971 then they all come to the surface and it's a huge problem and it's it's part of the collapse because they're not going to be able to maintain the social net that they promised, the pensions, all that kind of stuff. At some point, the only way to keep it going is to create more money to pay for it, which elevates the This is the spiral that Weimar Germany got in. Why do you think and we're not seeing inflation at the moment? Because it goes to the demarcation. First of all, I think we are seeing inflation, but it's subtle. And, and I, I determine inflation by the gold signal. I will look at the spot price of gold. But there's also an optimum price of gold, which defines the uh, price level. And you have to understand that. And you can see where the spot price of gold is in relation to optimum price of gold, which is around, optimum is around $1,400 now. There is some inflationary effects out there. But it's being curtailed, this demarcation that I talked about in 2008 when the Fed started paying interest on reserves. Because what happens is it creates, the in the 70s, every dollar, excess dollar the Fed created went out into people's, went out into the world, and people didn't want to hold that dollar because it was becoming less worthless. And the more the Fed created above what people wanted to hold, the greater the inflation, and it got worse and worse. What we're seeing after 2008 is the Fed creates these dollars, but they go into depository accounts, Fed depository accounts of the institutions, the too big to fails. So basically what the Fed is doing is it's going out buying bonds, driving interest rates to the zero bound, and, and with zero interest rates, it's causing all this misallocation of capital because some entity that should be bankrupt now has access to unlimited cap capital because there's no cost to it. So this misallocation causes all these economic distortions. But the reason it works is because this excess money goes into excess reserves 
that the Fed then turns around and pays interest on to these banks so they have an incentive to hold it. So unlike the 70s where all those excess dollars were resulting in inflation, the Fed since 2008 with its quantitative easing, excess reserves, interest on reserves, has changed the system that those that excess money is not getting into the economy either through cash or through loans into the economy. So that's what people are missing. That's what the people are missing when they look at the Fed's huge balance sheet. Yeah, it's got a huge balance sheet, but also look at the excess reserves. If there's a four, $4.5 trillion uh, Fed balance sheet, but $2.7 trillion of excess reserves, then that difference, what is that, uh, $2 trillion difference is just uh, a natural uh, extension of the Fed's balance sheets from 2008. So in summary... With the inflation that we've had with the change in gold price. See, it, when this happened in 2008, the price of gold was $1,000, right? Yeah. Now, it had moved up from three fifty, where it stabilized under Greenspan up until about 2004 or something, or 2005. And then with the financial crisis, gold fell to about 700 it went up to 1900 And so what happened was everybody was looking at this dollar creation, the Fed dollar creation after 2008. They were saying this is a repeat of the 70s, a dollar creation, inflation, they go together. The price of gold's going up. That's what happened in the 70s. It went from 50 up to 850 And this happened up until 2011. And then all of a sudden, the price of gold started collapsing. My theory, and I've written about this, and I've defined it on my website, is that they finally realized these excess reserves are getting locked out of the economy, this extra monetary creation, and it can't support a gold price of $1,900 because it's different than the 70s. It's being locked out of the economy, and the price of gold started falling, and it fell down almost, it fell down exactly to the equilibrium point between what the optimum price of gold was until it intersected with the spot price of gold, which was $1,100 in July of 2015. Now, does that make any sense to you? Yeah, I'm listening I, I'm to curious this. because that's, uh, I've had these discussions with other supply-side friends, and they agreed to some point. They don't all agree a lot. I don't think most even understand what I'm saying. I'm just curious if you understand so you're what so, I'm saying. So my, my take on it is that banks have realized under this current system that they make more money by leaving these funds with the Fed and get interest on reserves rather than that money actually going out and finding productive places in the economy to be used. Yeah, there was one. There was a scar tissue from the 2008 financial crisis. They had to recover, and the excess reserves did have help them recover. But the next thing that came along were all these regulations. I can't, off the top of my head, I can't list them all, but all these capital requirements and that didn't exist before basel three all these different requirements that they had to maintain about balance sheet to satisfy certain requirements which required a tremendous amount of capital to be held so we're seeing that now the fact that the fed has a seven trillion dollar balance sheet but these depository institutions too big to fail are under all these capital requ uh, requirements that forced them to hold vast sums of excess reserves to meet them. And the other thing is, there's no real economy to go out and loan yeah. into. We don't have a dynamic, in fact, we have the opposite of a dynamic economy. What we do have is we have extremely low interest rates. We have almost a zero cost of capital. 
And that's keeping everything going right now. So there's almost two separate economies. There's a financial economy with everything that takes place between the Fed and the big banks. And then there's what we would have called the real economy, which is laboring under historically unusual conditions right now. Exactly. And that's a big divide. That's the inequality issue that everybody talks about. But the the solution for most people or economist or whoever, when they talk about this chasm between those with the money and the, is to tax tax those with raise tax rates instead of looking at all the negative aspects that are causing this problem so some and that's how things always work Let's, for example you you take a pill and it causes side effects so your doctor gives you another pill which causes another side effect so now eventually you're taking 12 pills to counteract the side effect of every other pill yeah well, that's the way the economy world works. We do a bad policy, whatever, and it causes a side effect and then a, a negative economic event. Well, so then we institute another policy to counteract the, the, the negative event that we just created, and then it expands on itself. And pretty soon we end up where we're at right now. We have a world where everything is just completely distorted and makes uh, no sense. And we keep throwing on new solutions for all the the other economic problems that we've created. And that's one of the issues that I see with the economic world. Do you see a, a future where gold was banned for private citizens from, I think, what, 33 to 74? Is that right? 1933 to 1974? Um, yeah, that's correct. In the U.S. Yeah. Could you see that happening again? Anything's possible. <laughs> We're looking at locking people into their homes and uh, forcing vaccinations into healthy people. So I think anything's possible these days. Again, one of the things that happened since 1933 is there's been huge advances in education and learning and, and looking at history and seeing how things work. And people aren't necessarily satisfied to go back to old things that they didn't like previously. Mm. It's much more difficult for the government to ban gold now than I think it was in 1933. So whether they may attempt to, I think it's entirely possible. They could do it under the aegis of some crisis, which certainly could occur. And so I think that's a possibility. But I think anything really is a possibility right now. It's hard to see where where things may go in the immediate future. I wanted to ask you something you mentioned a moment ago. Can you help us understand the relationship between or how you're calculating the optimum price of gold and its relationship to the spot price. I was interested when you talked about that. Yeah, yeah, that's another interesting concept that most people don't get because when they look at gold, they only look at the spot price of gold. But think about it. When you're on a gold standard, say Bretton Woods for $35 an ounce, the price level adjusts to that stable value and there's an optimum price of gold that's completely identical to the spot price of gold because the price level is stable and it doesn't change. Now, fast forward to 1971. Okay, spot price of gold within a decade went from $35 an ounce to $825 an ounce before it fell back down to the 200s and eventually stabilized at 350. Okay, that was the spot price of gold. Now, the optimum, the price level, is based on contracts. We have employment contracts. We have wage contracts. We have bonds that are issued. They're all issued under the terms of stable money based on $35 price of gold. So they have to unwind, right? 
for that price level to start moving up to wherever the new spot price of gold is. And that unwinding is what I call the duration of debt. I estimate, or I learned this from Jude Wineski, that at the end of Bretton Woods, the duration of death, the, the amount of time it took these bonds to unwind and and then re be renegotiated at a new level based on how the price level has changed was like 25 years. Mm -hmm. Today, because there's less trust in the dollar, because it's been devalued so much, I estimate that duration of debt is about 10 years. An interesting point from that book I talk about, When Money Dies, is in, at the height of Weimar inflation, somebody could go in and order lunch at a certain price, and by the time it came out and they paid for it, the price had changed. Because <laughs> their duration of debt was 30 minutes. That's how bad the, the instability of their currency was. Wow. In places like Mexico have constant peso devaluation. They have much smaller duration of debts. And our duration of debt is decreasing right now also. So when I talk about the optimum price level, I'm talking about how contracts, wages, everything unwinds based on this duration of debt and readjust to a new price level based on the spot price of gold. So when you, when you started in... 1971, $35 an ounce. And then Greenspan came along and restabilized the dollar gold price at $350 an ounce. We got a new, eventually, those contracts unwounded, got renegotiated at 350 and we had a new optimized optimum gold price in line with the spot gold price, which was around 350 but it took uh, about 25 years for that to happen. It didn't finally catch up till about in the early 1990s. And that's only because Greenspan kept the uh, price of gold stable. And if you got- Today, we don't have a stable price of have gold. You, have you written on this on your website? Yeah, extensively. Yeah. It's, I've, I've got a, on my website, if you go in the right-hand column, yeah. there's a category designation. That's right. And I've got listed, for example, cryptocurrency. One of my categories is understanding gold. And if you go, if you click on that, all my posts that come up explaining gold, which talk about all this, you'll find on that category. It's funny. I think this. But I've talked about it quite a bit. The, those of us with interest in the supply side, it's just interesting what we, the lengths we go to read and the Polyconomics, Jude's website, and the SSU stuff. Like, yeah, I just. People have all sorts of interesting hobbies. Mine lately has been to start reading through these back catalogs of, of your stuff and Nathan's and Jude's. It's, it's fantastic that stuff's available. Let me make this comment about Jude. I was a client of his from 1993 until he, he died in 2006. So weekly, he was a prolific writer. I got all kinds of stuff, client letters, everything. So during this whole time period when I was learning economics, I would, everything Jude wrote, I would look at it in hindsight and say, and try to find errors where he got something wrong, where he missed something, where it didn't work out like he said. The entire time, I, I could never, the only minor thing I ever found was he was worried about Y2K. He thought it might have a big impact on the economics. But, it, but he only worried about it. He didn't say this is going to happen. But all his economic forecasting, all his prediction, everything he talked about and how he analyzed the economy, I could never find error. Not once. 
And when you look at our people predicting economics today, Larry Summers with secular stagnation, all the nonsense that comes out, they, they couldn't predict their way out of a paper bag because their model has no foundational basis for the economic world. So that was one of the things I understood when I got into my process of trying to work my way through his archives that, yeah, I didn't have to go somewhere else. I didn't have to oh, look to this person, look to that person because I had been a client for a long time. I had seen the efficacy of his, his model and how he, he analyzed it. And I knew that if I could comprehend this model, then the same efficacy would uh, work for me. Mm. And, and so that's kind of how this evolved for me. And I know that when I started, you want to look everywhere. You want to go look this, see what this person has, see what this person has to say, see what this person has to say. And at some point, you start getting some confusion because everybody's saying something different and you can't sort it out. What's true? What's not true? I had the benefit of being a client and being able to look for 13 years for any error in an economic model and never found any. So I basically, I stuck with that. So here's the big question. We are not offering financial advice to anybody, but I asked Nathan this, where do you see the gold price going? The one thing about gold that you have to understand is it's a function of how the Fed works and what the Fed does and all the other factors that affect the demand for dollars. And so in the near term, I can't say we're, we could have another economic crisis. I, I think that's very realistic. The price of gold could collapse with the economic crisis because that's what happened in 2008. And did that happen because there was just so much stimulus? So people figured out... In 2008, there wasn't the stimulus, but what happened was... Okay, in 2008, there was a certain... Let's say that there was a certain supply of, of dollars in a certain demand. And then 2008 happened. Let's say they were in equilibrium at $1,000 an ounce in 2008. And then the financial crisis happened. All right. The whole world during that financial crisis was demanding dollars. Okay. Because everything was collapsing. They needed dollars to stay solvent. So there was a huge demand for dollars. The price of gold is determined by the intersection of the supply and demand for dollars. The supply didn't increase, the demand increased it, so the price of gold fell, gotcha. which is the opposite of inflation. Mm. But it was temporary. As soon as the Fed started QE, in other words, increasing the supply, as soon as uh, demand stabilized because people were stabilizing their solvency and everything, then supply outstripped demand, and you saw the price of gold start rising, uh, which it did until 2011, uh, up to $1,900 an ounce. So back to that other question. But to get, it, where do you think I'm sorry, to get back to your going? question, where do I see gold going? I don't think, realistically, I don't think you can say anything, but the Fed has to continue to devalue. We've been on a fiat system since 1971, and what's happened? We've gone from 35000 or $35 an ounce up to almost 2000 What's going to change in the future? Uh, it, the, we talked about it. You talked about it with Nathan. The Fed is, is trapped in this cycle where it has to keep printing the money to keep things going. So I, I can't predict an exact price, but I can predict that if you get into gold in some correction at a good price, 
it's going to go up. Yeah. So to wrap up, as you look at this current moment, the MMT, COVID, do you is your gut feeling that we're heading for a precipice in terms of something dramatic, a huge correction, hyperinflation, or do you see us just limping along like this for the foreseeable future? Yeah, it's a fascinating time. We're actually in a point of history that there's no precedent for. So most of the times, like the 70s inflationary, you can go back to other inflationary periods and say, this is what happens when you have inflation. We've never had a period like this where you've all of a sudden have uh, a pandemic that is instigating global authoritarian control and all these economic forces at work in a digital economy that's coming on the horizon that can change everything. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I find it an interesting time. One of the, the, one of the things that is true of history is some, sometimes somebody of great importance steps out of the shadows and changes the world. And some people might think Trump's that person. I don't know if I'd go there, but we'll see what happens. He possibly could. He certainly reinvented a populist movement in the world in the same way that Reagan invented a economic movement in the world of stable money and low taxes. Is it true that the so Trump we can only Is look. it true that Trump allowed or encouraged huge amounts of money printing as well? Like the, the broad idea was that he would not have done that, but he the amount of stimulus and QE and stuff under his watch was there were the tax cuts, but he wasn't exactly an abstemious austerity kind of guy, right? Exactly. He actually campaigned on, hey, a gold standard might be a good idea. They worked well in the past. And then, of course, as soon as he got there and the Fed started normalizing and the stock market industry started falling, it was all about lower interest rates and get more money into the system and everything. But then again, he points Judy Shelton, a, one of the premier gold proponents in, in our country, to the Federal Reserve Board. For me, it's hard to it's hard to tell where Trump's at, where he's going, what he actually believes in. We'll just have to see. And under a President Biden, you just see business as usual? You just see... Yeah, I just see another puppet for the... I, I don't even think... I think he has cognitive issues that he'll very early drop out and we'll have a President Harris if it comes to that. And yeah. And she doesn't have original thought or idea about anything. So she's, wherever they want to take us with Harris, that's where we're going to go. It's that old Chinese proverb, may you live in interesting times. It's, I read Plutarch and each night I've been reading his Roman lives. And one of his quotes was that the greatest cause of suffering in empires is the gap between the rich and the poor. And I'm not arguing for equality of outcome, but you this stuff is helping me see that when a system gets imbalanced to this degree, then the social cohesion that holds us together it, it comes under enormous pressure. So that's the great thing of America, besides our our mineral rights, our property rights, all the our rights enshrined in the Constitution. In the period we had stable money, which was most of our history up until 1971, we developed a huge, strong, vibrant middle class. Mm -hmm. And it's the middle class that competes with the upper class and, and creates all the progress and the wealth for the country. We're seeing that middle class decimated right now. If you look at the goals of the Great Reset, it's basically an elitist 
a very small elitist globalist class and whoever's left serving them and, th and that's the way it is in most third world countries you have a ruling governing class and everybody else is poor and, and, and there's no middle class and if that happens in america we wipe out the middle class then we're basically a third world nation so to finish up what's next for you what areas of reading inquiry what's getting your interest at the moment what's next i'm fascinated by you coming out of the woodwork <laughs> you sent me an email and i ignored it because i've had some bad emails but once i realized who you were and what you wanted to do i, I can't tell you how wonderful i think this series that you're promoting and creating is and I, and I literally think it could change the world this type of thing this is how small events started and spiral into great events it's very positive that you did this and this this is what i'm uh, what i'm seeing happening around the world people are starting to stand up that they're starting to realize that things aren't right and they're coming to their own uh, ways to deal with it and you are new to learning this but you're running a podcast on it and uh fantastic job and i can see i can see this taking off and everybody wanted to do a podcast with you because yeah, be great. No, well, the first one was really good and hopefully you can somehow no, make this been one great you may have heard this in the last week's episode but i think i was listening to an audio book from george gilder and because i run ultra marathons i was it was about 4 30 a.m it was seven degrees below zero and i was running and I just heard him mention your name and uh, in the audiobook and I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. And I tried to hold it in my head because I was like 35 k's into a run. I thought, I hope I can remember that guy's name. And then I looked you up and uh, it went from there. So look, it's great to be doing this. I think for me, I just have a couple of basic beliefs. I think there's an incredible inherent dignity in work and in creating goods and services that people want. I think that when we lose that as a culture, then it's a really bad thing and yeah and i think i'm a kind of i think rights to privacy and minimum minimal intervention from governments are a good thing i think i'm pretty convinced of that that we need to have some freedom to pursue our lives keeping the social contract of course and seeking to do good but yeah just those things interest me i think that's where some 90 percent of the population is at yeah. now they may be have different ideas on how to achieve it but every human being is born with an inherent desire for liberty nobody's born that wants to be enslaved i wouldn't think there might be a few but in general we all have the same makeup we desire liberty we desire freedom and that's a conflict that's coming is how this inherent liberty is going to be dealt with between the populace and the governing yeah you know, so we had we'll see how this plays out we had a bunch of people over for my birthday last sunday and one of them is a senator and and there was a robust conversation at some point during lunch and somebody was asking about the difference between political factions and some of the forces we're seeing in the world and I, I don't remember where I got this. I'd have to remember where this meta principle came to me from. It's not my own. But the point was that the fundamental tension in culture at the moment is between freedom and control. That the, the global forces, if you had to be reductionist, you'd say that there's an impulse for for freedom and there seems to be a drive towards centralism and control and how those forces resolve in the next decade or so is going to be a very interesting ride. Exactly. Exactly. I agree with that. 
and we're seeing it uh, play out in real time. Boredom, boredom so will we'll not be a problem. Happens. I want to thank you for joining us from Dallas, Texas in the evening. It's about uh, two o'clock here in Australia and uh, what have I got ahead of me? School pickups, like I said before, we've got kids soccer this evening. For my many sins, I get to stand on the sideline in, in the wind and cheer on a bunch of 10-year-olds running in the wrong direction. <laughs> so it's, it's going to be a busy afternoon. But Mike, listen, I want to thank you. I want to thank you for making time for us today. And I know people are going to get a great deal out of what you've shared with us. And I'm going to be listening to this again myself just to go deep in what you've said. We're going to direct everybody to manonthemargin.com. You've got to go check out Mike's blog. He writes brilliantly. There is just a huge archive there. So join me down the rabbit hole of the great stuff that Mike's sharing with us. So once again, Mike, thanks so much for joining us on the Supply Side Podcast. Thank you, Jonathan. Hey, everybody. Jonathan with you again. I really hoped you enjoyed that special discussion with the one and only Mike Kendall. I know it's going to be one of those interviews that I'll be listening to several times. Uh, Mike and I both have a great shared passion for cycling and I just love listening to these kind of interviews because I think that the more you listen to them you just find new insights and depth especially when you're listening to somebody like Mike who similar to Nathan is what Mike doesn't know about these topics may not have been written he's he's gone deep and i want you to head across to his blog at manonthemargin.com manonthemargin.com make sure you subscribe sign up for his list because uh, he's putting out some great stuff on a regular basis really interesting topics check out some of the archives i think he's got so much to teach us on these topics around the optimum price of gold's price signal the, uh, the level of knowledge that he has, I think, is going to be really important for many of us in this challenging moment of global macro, what do we say, upheaval, tumultuousness, is that a word? It is now. It's definitely interesting times, so I think having people like Mike doing this kind of thinking and research is a huge blessing to all of us. For me here at the Supply Side Podcast, please make sure that you've subscribed to the show, give it a rating, add a comment. That's a huge help to us, but obviously the most important thing you can do to help us gain traction is to just grab the link wherever you're listening to this and send it to some like-minded people who have an interest in global macro, hard money, low taxes, gold standards, all the things that we come to believe can help political economy and our wider culture to flourish. All right, that's it for me. We're going to have another fantastic interview next week. We're going to bring you another great guest that's going to take us deeper on this journey of the things that actually work, not the theories that might work, the theories that actually work. That's what we're all about here at the Supply Side Podcast. My name's Jonathan Doyle, and we're going to have another episode for you next week. <laughs>